Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast, Coffees on Me, David Crumb, where I strive to give guests legacy-worthy interviews that listen to and enjoy while cooking, commuting, relaxing, or walking their pets. Um, a very reflective and humbling weekend for me, um, but it's particularly nice to recharge after work and um, to have an ice latte with my guests early on a Sunday morning, uh, very, feeling very, very good. I feel very blessed that we're now, you know, approaching the next uh, big po- uh, podcast milestone of 100,000 podcast downloads. Please know that I don't take any of your time, feedback and support for granted, because when I started this Passion Project podcast at a low point of my time in Cambridge, I was genuinely motivated by three founding ideals. Number one, purpose of giving. Number two, learning from others. And number three, sharing of stories. These three aspirations still make up the content description for every single episode. Indeed, the opportunities to strive to give my courageous and insightful guests legacy-worthy interviews over coffee, tea, bubble tea, water, juice, or whatever it is, despite my many inadequacies, have been a tremendous privilege that imbues me with gratitude. I know that I will listen and look back to laugh at how naive I am. But if you have been enjoying the discussions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and uh, thank you. And please do consider leaving a review and nominating a guest by contacting me via my link tree, David Kwan. In fact, um, just yesterday, I realized that um, on Spotify, you could add a Q&A feature. And now below every episode, I've added a question where uh, if you got any more suggested questions for the guests, um, you can put it there. But for now, you know, seeing this podcast on people's Spotify raps or receiving positive messages about the guests give me tremendous fulfillment. I cannot thank all my wonderful guests enough for their courage and insights. And I genuinely maintain the deep conviction that this passion project, if wholly true to those founding motivations about giving, learning and sharing, is a worthwhile pursuit. So now on to my um, very bubbly, talented and um, thoughtful guest. As the youngest child of three, Sophie Boxall, um, who studies education at Homerton College, University of Cambridge, is all too familiar with the struggle to meet the achievements of her siblings. She has an older brother with autism who defied expectations of him based on ableism and graduated from University of Portsmouth with a 2-1 in biomedical science after being told he couldn't even attend a mainstream secondary school, let alone go to university. To continue to raise the bar, her sister achieved the highest grades she could have at every educational level, annoyingly for Sophie, and graduated from the University of Oxford with a BA in English, and to top it off, did a master's at Corpus Christi College, University of Cambridge, during Sophie's first year at Cambridge. A passion of Sophie's is striving to achieve inclusive education and an inclusive society. This is particularly due to her experience of living and struggling with a hidden disability, her role as a young carer and her time working with children with additional needs. Sophie has been a feminist since the womb and feels this has created a perpetual undertone or a very obvious one of anger to accompany this, causing her to develop pretty good debating skills, which is a nightmare for anyone she argues with. Sophie has struggled with mental health issues through a prominent part of her teenage years, with a lot of trauma and anxiety causing her first year at uni to be fairly tumultuous to say the least. During her teens, Sophie's family experienced a lot of illness and her father being made redundant, so she experienced the move from middleish class to working class. 
Sophie believes that this period of her life has been very significant in shaping her understanding of the world and definitely solidified her already firm political beliefs. And despite the cultural weight offered by 2010s in terms of pop culture, carried mainly by Glee and the British YouTube scene. For Sophie, it's been a decade of feeling the expectation of figuring out her extraordinary dreams while just feeling um, pretty ordinary. Sophie, welcome to my podcast, Coffee's on me, David Hello, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I love how you brought um, suitcases here. <laughs> yeah, I was prepared. I've got like a bag full of props for my podcasting. I'm just, mm-hmm. I can't prepare all the time. <laughs> 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 you know, I travelled up after work yesterday, so I have to travel back home again. Knowingly for me, carrying that around the tube has not been the best experience of my life. So, and I also feel bad for the Londoners who have to put up with me being quite touristy everywhere with my suitcase. But <laughs> um, you've been working in a museum this um, summer. What have that involved? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I returned to where I went last summer. Annoyingly for me, I was hoping to bag somewhere better, but big up Fort Nelson. Um, so I'm just a museum assistant. Um, so I kind of just walk around, talk to people sell stuff and that's about it really um I do about 20,000 steps a day if I'm actually doing my job properly um but yeah no it's been quite good apart from when it's raining so most of it's outside (laughs) annoyingly for me um but yeah five days a week it's too much for me I'm not meant I'm not meant to be (laughs) (laughs) full-time are you paid by hour or commission uh, hour is yeah no it's based on it's just a hourly rate to be honest but annoyingly I get paid at the end of every month which is mm. I know it's normal but I'm like it's summer let me let me live give me money please <laughs> but yeah no the people there are lovely I've, I know a lot of them from last year so yeah it's been good to work with them again <laughs> and uh, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned to, uh, about yourself um, returning to the same place after a year of university have you changed much I feel like I definitely have I feel like I'm definitely more like I won't put up with stuff as much I think last summer was a bit of a funny one um because I started I got obviously started the job there and then got my offer like got my grades and all that happened I think it's a big shift in my brain confidence booster I, I don't know, I think I got into Cambridge and I was like, shit, really? Oh, sorry, can I swear? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, now I actually have to go and do this because I think it had been a concept. Like, when I sat my exams and all that, I was like, yeah, okay, well, I've applied to Cambridge, like, done that. And then it became really real. Um, and then I decided just, I was like, I'll mess up everything else in my life. Um, so I broke up with the boyfriend I had at the time of three and a half years. So I was like it's time to just mix it, all up, mix it all up a bit. Yeah, and then I was working at this place and it got a bit messy. And then I went back this year and I was like, you know what, not putting up with it this time. I was like, I think a year at uni has taught me to just be like unapologetically myself and just argue people I want to argue with and not put up with their stuff. So yeah, I do feel a lot more grown up, even though I am the youngest. Um, so I'm 19 and everyone else that kind of works there is upwards of like 20 23 to about 60 like it's a very diverse workplace <laughs> um in terms of age but any, any um anecdotes there of you not putting up with things that you know characterizes everything that you just said um so there was just um okay it's a bit dark it's not really dark it was just there was some guys there who were just a bit touch deprived um and they did not treat me the nicest and i didn't do anything about it at the time 
and there was one guy who was he's 24 and he just I was very very vulnerable at the time and he just treated me really badly um so yeah it was not good sorry um, to hear it's all right not um, acceptable I went back to work this year and I went actually you know what f that <laughs> I was like I went to my manager and I said to him this is what happened last year it happened twice at work like Mm. All of this sort of stuff. Um, it's not cool. And then he, he was like, oh, I wish you'd told me last year. And annoyingly mm. for me, nothing's really happened about it because, you mm. know, that's how it is. Um, but, yeah, I was like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm I'm not letting people get away with this because I've got this, like, mentality where actually I don't really care about getting justice for myself. It's mm. more that I want that to not happen ever again to anyone else mm. because it's – there's like younger girls working in that cafe there's my my friend works there Mm. um and it's just kind of like i don't want how i felt to ever be felt by someone else Mm. and i think that's my my case with a lot of stuff like if someone treats me a certain way Mm. i would like them to know that i don't like that and Mm. i don't want them to ever Mm. treat anyone else like that that's very thoughtful Um, if you like be an advocate and really just empathizing and thinking about the wider implications and other people who may be vulnerable. So we study the same course, exact same, um, you know, degree, exact same track within it, education policy and international development. Um, and we took the same papers. And so we, we um, how did you find first year education? It was a lot. It was a lot. Do if you want I to was... be a teacher? No. Oh my God, no. <laughs> the amount of times I get that stupid question. I'm like, no. Also because I come from a line of teachers. Like everyone in my family was a teacher. Like all of my grandparents were either lecturers or head teachers at schools locally. And then my pe- my parents both taught and everyone's like, oh yeah, just following in the books all like the household like career. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get out of this country and go and make change somewhere else far from here but yeah it's been good I've learned I definitely have learned a lot and I've kind of learned more about myself in terms of what I'm actually interested in because the good thing about it is it's so broad I don't know if you found that like Mm. when you didn't know what course to choose as well before you got there and you're like actually this one looks Mm. like everything Mm. linking to what I am interested in Mm. (laughs) so it's just bringing it all back to the foundation of education. It's been good. Yeah, I think it's very unique in the sense that everyone has an opinion, a very strong personal opinion with education because we're all, you know, experienced it. Or yeah. even if you weren't in school, you, you can talk about the education of not being in school. Um, what I did find with first year was that it seemed to be very... Um, um, compartmentalized like the the language communication literacy course like you know learning about how babies learn language seems very different to like the global justice or sociology <laughs> or, or, or like you know critical debates where yeah. you're moving from like Mino's paradoxes to philosophy to like moral education to the reproduction of social inequality I just didn't really know where I should focus my attention on yeah. so I, I do agree that there is a the strength of the breadth but I also kind of struggled with pinpointing what am I actually meant to know yeah i think that yeah i definitely found that was the case it was like there's less crossover there's mm. like barely any overlap between papers i think occasionally borjo would come up and i'd be like oh okay mm. hi welcome back he like lcl critical debates and sociology this mm. is crazy it will come up um even more next year 
<laughs> I just I love the guy, but I've had enough of him. <laughs> like he's come up too much for me. Um, but yeah, he's really won the cultural capital game really by, by by appearing everywhere. That's that's his top tip. He's like just write about it enough. <laughs> but it's just that he never actually explains it that well. He's just like, yeah, well, cultural capital is where you have a lot of capital in culture. <laughs> so it's just like, come on, please explain it to me. I'm just reading pages and pages of you saying the same words over and over again. <laughs> I mean, I could definitely not do as well as he has because I'm not claiming to be some sort of theorist, but mm. <laughs> I can critique from afar. <laughs> so do you feel like, you know, the, the theories that you gain in um, the degree, especially, say, on concepts like cultural capital, social inequalities, um, on, like, you know, w- with, like, Durkheim and the modern kind of capitalist society and the lack of integration and the social norm... Um, obviously, it's nice to read about it. It's nice to write about it, but we also come from it from a personal perspective of what you experienced. Do you feel like it helped you to either like understand your life a bit better, or to see your own or make sense of your own life in a different, more structured perspective? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this. It's kind of like I feel like not to crap all over the theorists, but I feel like they kind of just put into words what everyone feels in their own way so it's like you could say yeah you could say cultural capital but that's just a way of saying someone's experience you know what i'm trying to say i'm trying to explain it well it's just like and they're and they're privileged enough to have the education and the experience and the platform to say that sort of stuff but there's people that could also offer a different insight and i think there's just so many different people that Mm. view things differently that's kind of you can never have one term that describes everything that well Mm. um but yeah, I think it has helped me to kind of like vocalize mm. stuff. But I think one of my pet peeves is that it feels like you have to be really well educated or really intelligent to be able to talk about big issues and like everything's so politicized as like as it mm. should be. But then so you people think feel there's excluded a lot of from it. Unnecessary jargon, which ironically yeah. is actually what they're talking about. Yeah, it's like you're using all these big words and which are <laughs> actually just very common. Yeah, and it's a someone that. I, I'm not a big reader. I've never been a big reader. I've just... Mm. Not, I, lo- I love reading, I do, but I just never get my head around it. It's just not, mm. not for me. Um, it's like, I don't know all these big words, and then I'll go to these places mm. where these people have been to really expensive schools, or they, they, they've been taught different vocab to me because I grew up in Portsmouth. I, mm. I say water. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm just... <laughs> I'm like, this is not my world. It feels I really exclusionary. That's the concept in LCR with the language codes or yeah. something. I can't remember. Yeah, it's Bern- yeah. Oh yeah, Bernstein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hate that. I remember it. I'm gonna block it from my brain. No more LCR ever. Decided. I'm not taking it. I'm not helping any first years either. They can. They can struggle. I struggle. They can struggle. <laughs> That's a change from what you said ten yeah. minutes ago. But I don't want anyone else to feel that. Don't date me out. I know. I take that back. First years, if if you're listening, I'm definitely gonna help you. (laughs) No, first first year LCL was Mm. evil. Oh no, it's not for me. So that's really interesting observation that a lot of the difficult concepts and you know they they don't write very succinctly and they use these big words and phrases. They're actually quite common sense, simplistic things. Um. So what are, are are there any like actually genuinely new concepts or ideas or frameworks that you weren't really thinking much about that you learned? Um, not too sure. I think anything to do with class, I was pretty familiar on because 
this is, it just made sense mm. um, to me. But then I think a lot of stuff about in sociology, we missed, I missed a lecture, really annoyed I did. It was the gender and sexuality lecture. Mm. And then the feminist one as well. I think we mm. missed those because of the strikes. Mm. So I would really love to go back and read some of the books on the reading list for that one because they seemed very interesting. Mm. Um, but a lot of the concepts in that I'm not familiar with because I haven't learned. Or same with um, when we were doing colonialism mm. and all that sort of stuff. I, I barely knew anything. I thought I was like, that's really shit <laughs> that mm. my school had failed me mm. in knowing anything about that. Mm. And I, I really enjoyed learning about that. And it was from people, and it was in a lecture. Well, not a lecture, because education isn't really a lecture, is it? It's like a room full of 20 people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just all these different people from all over the world coming together and just, like, saying mm. things that they knew and then just, like, amalgamating that knowledge all together and, like, sharing that mm. in that space was really, like, insightful for me. I think that was mm. a lecture I really enjoyed and it was hearing people really passionate about it. Mm. And it frustrated me because I came out of there feeling, why didn't I know any of this? Mm. It's so important mm. to know this. I didn't really understand it, to be honest, at the start. Yeah, because I didn't even know the difference between the phrases. There's like colonial, colonialism, coloniality. Coloniality. I was like, I didn't, I didn't pick that up. What am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand this. <laughs> like, That's this right. I didn't me. actually understand that until like two months before my final exam. But that actually is um that actually is, I think, the crux of the degree actually yeah. when you get further. Which I realised luckily yeah. before the end, but a bit too late I think. <laughs> I mean, like, try and chuck it in every essay now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like can I add half page to my desk? <laughs> <laughs> well you said um you um live next to Angelina? And yes, yeah, yeah. You listened to her episode. How did you find that? Because we it talked was, a fair bit about yeah, colonialism. It was very good. I enjoyed it. It was it was weird to hear things about someone I'd lived next to for a year <laughs> and knew very well and yeah. had gossiped about everything too. And it's just those sort of <laughs> things. I love the sort of idea of this podcast. People don't mention the stuff they talk about on here. It's not surface level. It's mm. not like you can meet someone and say, hi, my name's... I wouldn't be like, hi, my name's Sophie, and I went to this school, and I did this, 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 and this. You wouldn't then <laughs> be, be pretty like, boring. this is my biggest fear. Here's all my secrets. Like, <laughs> I think it would be a bit overwhelming, because I'm an oversharer, but I'm not that much of an oversharer. Um, but yeah, it was really lovely to hear her in her American accent. I'm just annoying her now. Her international accent. <laughs> did you tell her that you listened to it? Yeah, I, was, I saw her yesterday, actually, and I was oh, saying okay. to her, I was like, yeah, going to go on and name drop you all. And say really horrible <laughs> things about you all as well but um yeah no I think she she said it was funny because she said so you're listening to me I think I was like in bed just reading or something and I was listening to it and she said so you're like trying to fall asleep with me whispering in your ear <laughs> she said you could have just knocked on my door I would have come over and I was like that's a bit uncomfortable <laughs> but just bang on the wall hard enough mm-hmm. and she'd hear me um but yeah that seems to be a a theme in our like friendship over the year mm. the first day I got to uni didn't know who she was because I just saw her posting there on her door <laughs> and then I didn't realize that she was in there so I was <laughs> I basically had some friends in my room and I was trying to put my pictures up because you know the little cork board you get it's red in at Homerton it's not nice yeah. I was trying to cover it I was like get rid of this red's yeah. not my color I was trying to pin up some photos and I was using a, a whiteboard pen because yep. I didn't have anything else I was hammering into the wall and she said me and my mum were sat in my room and you were just going bang, bang, bang on the wall she said that was the first time I'd ever knew you existed and you were just <laughs> making so much noise so yeah I could just start banging on the wall with a pen and she might pop over and whisper in my ear but that's awesome good to have those uh, moments of encounters <laughs> yeah. and friendships have you found uh, making friends at Cambridge easy um yeah I think so not to sound like 
up myself but um I've always been quite forward like I think I'll just chat like I'm, I'm I can chat for England I've been told that many times um which I think is kind of an insult <laughs> when I think about it um but I do just I love talking and I love talking to people so I'll just be like immediately trying to find common ground about something or like I'll say oh that those are cool jeans like one of my friends first day of uni there's this weird little scavenger hunt that Hamilton did and he had cool jeans on and I went oh my god I love your jeans and then we just started talking and his name on my phone is now Sam Cool Jeans <laughs> so it's just those little moments and mm. it's like you remember them and I think that's so sweet because every time you look at that person in the back of your head that moment is there mm. so with Angelina the first time I actually met her she was really drunk <laughs> <laughs> on the first night of uni they were going out I wasn't I was ill um but she, was like she knocked on my door because she wanted to meet me she was like oh I haven't met you yet she gave me a massive hug and I just think that's in my heart and I just love especially with like old friends as well because a lot of the friends I have at home I've known since I was a little little kid so I was like at preschool so four three mm, or four wow. so I don't really remember how I met them mm. but it's nice to them as an adult make friends because mm. I think you hold it closer to your heart. It makes it means more mm. in a way. Um, but yeah, I think Cambridge is just such a... It's such an overwhelming place that I think everyone bonds over the fact that we're all feeling a bit crap. Mm. And then it makes it so much easier to just get on with people. And yeah, there'll be people you don't really like get on with to that extent. But I think everyone's got that solidarity of the sense that, okay, we just need to be nice to each other. Mm. Like no one needs any drama. Mm. it's enough being here like being here is enough <laughs> drama <laughs> for us mm. so I think it's really lovely and Homerson as well is the friendliest college so not, to, not to flex <laughs> <laughs> but everyone describes us as friendly and it's just like it would feel weird not to walk past someone and have them smile at you mm. at another college I think if that happened to me I'd be like offended I'd be like, I'd take pure <laughs> events to that um but yeah I think especially in Homerson you said um <clears throat> don't know what's happening outside but um you mentioned how for you class just makes sense and it's one of the key things that you think about um obviously at Cambridge people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and um you mentioned in your bio how there has been a lot of um debates that has you know that has uh characterized your some of your interactions um what kinds of debates and what topics and how have those debates come up I think it's just more of like a because in the sense of debate I think it's kind of a just a mismatch or like a naivety I think because I think and the same could be said obviously about me to someone else in their background um because I was lucky enough that I grew up and I hate when people say this and I don't want to be that girl but we were comfortable <laughs> we weren't rich we weren't like we weren't poor and then and then I think but we were always very like left-wing anyway um so then my dad was made redundant after he got ill and then we were on benefits for a while um, so I found and I really struggled with that through my teen years and I think it just did it it made me stronger it really did uh, and it made me understand a lot more and I really did I had compassion already and then getting to especially Cambridge getting to uni and being with people who don't get that and who haven't experienced something like that and that's not to say any less of them that's not to say that they're a bad person it's just to say they don't get it and obviously, I'm not saying I get everything because I don't. Um, there's different struggles. Um, but the debates that we sort of had would be like, I think it would just be some people that were a little bit out of touch and nothing's springing to my brain. I know there was definitely some occasions. Um, but I'm trying to think now. 
But I don't know. I'm mainly at uni. I'm mainly friends with people who kind of get it. I think I've mainly just. I think you attract people that you like have a shared understanding of something with. Because realistically, I don't think. I think everyone does that thing where they say, with politics especially, that it doesn't really matter to friendship and blah blah blah. Like you can still be friends with someone if they have different views to you. But there's there's a bottom line. And I think I would never be friends with someone who had completely different views to me or anything that really would not fit my <clears throat> ideology at all. But, yeah. Um, so you attribute part of you, um, so-called, getting it because of the, 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 the kind of turning point in your family's life. So then if other people haven't had that turning point, then mm. they um, understandably may not get it. So... Obviously, we don't want to make everyone go through a turning point just for the sake of getting it. (laughs) Yeah, no. So what what, um, other ways do you think um, we and you can think about we as in, you know, us as uni students or policymakers or teachers, whoever it is, how can we help more people to get it? Because it's important to get it. Yeah, I think that's a good question. It's, uh, yeah, obviously not to say that people have to go through that to understand it um but I think anyone who's willing to listen and understand someone's point of view and I think debates are so important Mm. and I I don't like the word debate I mean it is obviously it's a debate but it's more of like a it's more just like yeah it's like an educational conversation you sit there and you go okay well that's my opinion Mm. now I'm giving you space to express yours Mm. and if their opinion is offensive then I'll be like no (laughs) let's scrap that one Mm. but I think if they have it's important to understand where their opinion comes from because mm. my one of my <clears throat> biggest like hatreds is when someone just spouts out what they've read from like well not what they've read like what they've inherited politically or <clears throat> morally or socially and it's just it's just annoying to me i think i think it's you've got time especially at uni mm. that's the biggest opportunity you get to find out actually what do i believe in mm. what am i interested in and how am i going to express this mm. Um, but I think it's about, obviously, like, not to be cliche, but as an education student, <laughs> it's about implementing that, like, getting it from an early age. Mm. And I think also, I mean, call me optimistic, but the mm. society we live in is not built to facilitate that at all. Mm. Because you wouldn't have such difference if you had a more, not forgiving, a more understanding government. Like, so first of all, get the really out-of-touch politicians out of the House of Commons (laughs) and get people in there that actually live and work and interact with people in the society and understand and have compassion. I think that's a really important, like, personality trait for anyone with a position of power to have because Mm. if you don't have compassion, then how are you supposed to Mm. understand the people you're working with or help people or do anything that's actually productive mm. especially if you're like in charge of a country <laughs> but yeah it's a, it's a difficult one to implement I think it's all sounding quite like in an ideal world but there's, there's an ideal world somewhere <laughs> so obviously all of our beliefs and um all of our viewpoints are um tangibly shaped by the experiences that we've been through and to really listen to someone and to really understand why they are advocating a certain ideology got to understand why they think that way and obviously for you family has been um a tremendous part for you and just you know as you mentioned that turning point as an example do you want to just 
maybe just paint a picture of what you have been through. You know, where did you, where did your story begin? And, you know, you said family of teachers, but um, what else more do you want to share about the context of your background? It depends how much time you have. <laughs> All the time you need. Um, yeah, it's been a weird one. I got asked, I went to a therapy session <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. He spoke to me about, just for anxiety stuff, and he spoke to me about, he was like, so how is your family dynamic? Like, what was your childhood like? I was like, oh, I think it was pretty normal. And the further I delved into it, it's like, actually, no, that was a lot of stuff that happened, like, not within my family, but to, to my family that really would have shaped the dynamic. <laughs> um, so I think the, like, important place to start is that my brother was born at 28 weeks. So he was very premature, um, very poorly. And that, I think that really, he was the first as well, that really put a thing on my parents where they were like, and from that point, I think they've been very protective of all three of us. I mean, least protective of me because I was a third. So when I was a kid, they didn't really care what I did. So I explained to someone the other day, I don't know if you've ever been to an aquarium <laughs> where they have those little like wiggly plastic toys that go through your hands and have like blue liquid in them and the little mm. fish. Yeah. When I was a child, managed to consume two of those. Yeah. <laughs> bit through it and drank it. Parents didn't even take me to hospital. They didn't care. I was like, guys, I could not be alive. And I, yeah, I've got my head stuck in a stair gate. So, so the peak of being a youngest child is many things happened to me that wouldn't have been allowed to slide for my siblings because they were in bubble wrap. But when they got to me, my parents were like, actually, she'll be fine. She's built of stronger stuff. <laughs> and I think that has made me definitely more like headstrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but then as, as we got older and more stuff began to happen, I think they did go back to that bubble wrap style. Um, so especially now, after first year of uni, my parents are very much protective. <laughs> um, and maybe in a bit of a <laughs> smothering way. I don't want to <laughs> make them upset by talking about them. But I love them a lot. They're just, they love me too much. I mean, everyone does, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then, yeah, as I was saying earlier, like my family, my childhood was pretty normal. Like I think we had a steady income my dad worked with I'd never know what my dad's job title ever was I just know that he worked with children at different primary schools with additional needs and mental health issues and family struggles and he's he's always been very good at just listening he's been a very good listener I think I did inherit that from him which I'm which I'm happy to have got I may have gotten his broad shoulders but I also got his compassion um and I'm yeah (laughs) but he yeah he said he was doing that and then he started working at a school around the corner from our house. And it started when I think I was 12, I want to say. I was quite young, early teenage years, not even teen yet, tween. Um, so he, the first injury he had was sciatica. So he fell, <laughs> we were roller skating <laughs> as a family, we went roller skating. And he, he fell and he landed on his butt and he hit his coccyx. And he had sciatica for a very long time. It was really painful. And I think that was the moment where he started just like it was harder to work and I think he's had a lot happen and then after that point we were on holiday in Exeter we went to visit his alma mater I don't know if we call that it is that what we call it in the UK I don't think so but where he went to uni (laughs) um so we went to visit and he ate uh, we went to the pub near there and then when we got home he started feeling really unwell and he couldn't really eat anything and every time I talk to people about this because he's been living off salad crackers and cup of soup for god knows how long now i think it's 16 years no 16 six (laughs) um because he turns out he had gallbladder stones (laughs) 
which is just, I didn't even know that was an organ that you could have. I didn't know we had gallbladders. So another time the education system has failed me, biology-wise, definitely not a STEM student. And then I think his experience of going to the NHS during those years wasn't great. Um, I think it was just after David Cameron. So um, it wasn't a great time for the NHS or him. Um, and then he had the surgery and they, they missed one. So one of the stones from his gallbladder ended up in his pancreas. Then he had acute pancreatitis. <laughs> and basically this meant that he couldn't work and he got made redundant very not fairly. We think mildly not legally either when he was really ill um, from this school that he'd been working at. So he left his job to go to the school and they were like, after a year, they're like, actually, we don't need you anymore because they academized as well. So that's also another reason I hate academies. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I think he was on... We were on benefits for a bit, for quite a while. I think we still are, actually. Yeah. So when he got made redundant, um, what do you remember of the first few days and what, what did that mean for the family? Was there a real tangible worry and anxiety that suddenly popped up? I think it had been growing for a while. I don't remember much of it. I must have been quite young. A lot's happened um, over the past, and my memory is awful. But I do just remember, like, it's like if I think back over my childhood and like till this point there is a haze over that part because he was really poorly and we were all really scared and and he's not ever been a very vulnerable man he's always been quite tough and he doesn't really cry and he's doesn't ever get that emotional really um he's quite a softy and then he was just in this place where it was just like he was so poorly and it was horrible to watch and he lost so much weight and he was yeah, and it it was horrible. It was really... It's not nice to watch people you love struggle. And then I think my mum was going through some stuff. I think then her... When was that? That was 2019. I think my dad was recovering at that point, kind of, like he was getting a bit better. My grandma passed away. That broke my mum. And it was just that whole time that I think there was a big level of anxiety. And um, I think that has added to, like, mine and my siblings' mental health too. I think that constant fear of something just it's like switching immediately mm. just completely flipping your life on its head and that fear of change and I mean maybe I share that with my brother because his his like things to be very precise and very consistent as a, as a man with autism <laughs> maybe I've that's rubbed off on me a little bit because I just hate when stuff changes and I think everyone does I think the only constant everyone says in life is change but just for it to be so sudden and mm. you didn't even see it coming. We were just mm. like, oh, okay, now we're significantly less wealthy. Oh. We weren't wealthy, but we had, luckily they'd managed to buy a really cheap house in the 90s because, you know, the housing market was great <laughs> back then. And as a kid, they had, um, when I was a kid, they had extensions in the house. So we had we had a house at least. And I'm, I'm really thankful that I never had to worry about where I was going to live. And that's something that, I, like a lot of people, can can be grateful for. Um, but we did, yeah, we did struggle. I think my mum worked really hard. She took up a job because she never worked because she was a carer for my brother. And then for me as well when I was born because I was very poorly when I was born. Um, and then she took up a job cleaning this guy's house and he was very rich. He was rich to the extent where I was like, they'd throw away brand new clothes all the time. And he'd get rid of bags and bags of clothes, which, I mean, he gave to us in the end because he was going to get rid of them. And my mum was like, oh, my daughter really likes... Because he had daughters. Really likes clothes. Like, can she, can she, like, have them, sew them, sell them? Like, 
you don't want them, do you? And he was like, no, it's fine. So there was like Vivian Westwood shirts in these piles of clothes with labels on them. There was Michael Kors suits with labels on them. And I ended up taking a lot of that stuff to uni last term. It was Lent term. Mm. And I was like, you know what, does anyone want to come and grab something? Because I was like, I've got too many suits at home. Don't want to sell them. It's too much effort. People on Vinted are annoying. And I um, I said to them, uh, the people at Homerton, I extended out. A couple of people did come and take stuff. Um, and then I did ask. I said to people, I don't want any money because people offered. But I was like, but if you want to, I'm going to donate to Beat, uh, Eating's a sort of charity. So I said to them, um, if you want to donate money, that would be really lovely. So um, I think a few people donated £15. Like, one girl donated £20. She didn't even get anything. I was like, thank you so much. Um, this guy bought me... He was a postgrad student. He bought me a... I can't remember what it was. But I think it was, like, a, a snack he'd made. Like, it was, like, a homemade, like, baked good. It was really sweet. Um, and then I donated... I ended up donating £70 to this charity, um, which I was really happy about. It meant a lot to me. Um, so I'm really grateful to the people from Homerton. Thanks, guys. Um... <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I've really moved away from the question you asked now, haven't I? Told you I could chat. I could chat for England. I'm on a different. I'm on a different topic <laughs> completely. Um, but yeah, no. So she took up the job cleaning, and she hated it. She really did. She hated it, and she did it every single week for about three years, just so she could. She didn't even use that money on important things. She used it to buy me and my sister dresses, and my sister was going to Oxford in 2018, which meant good for her because when we were we were poor enough to get her a lot of support, which I also have, luckily. Um, but, yeah, my mum would use it to buy us things we wanted. So she wanted us to feel like we weren't so... You know, we were, we didn't need to worry so much. And when I say dresses, I don't mean, like, <laughs> bougie ball gowns. But um, she would she would treat us every once in a while with that money that she was making. Um, and then it, it started to look up, I think... Over the past two years, my dad became a driving instructor. He taught me how to drive. Lucky for me, because it's so expensive. <laughs> um, and then now he's got a job that he really wants to do. So it's, it's looking up for the voxels. Everyone's a bit happier. I think everyone's feeling a bit brighter. He's got a job he actually really like cares about. It's at a farm. It's, he's an education... Uh, assist, not assistant. He's an educational person at a farm so he does like interactions with school school groups and children with additional needs and it really is something that he is passionate about he's always been annoying when we go to farms and zoos I think I remember vividly remember one time at Longley I don't know if you you probably won't have been to Longley it's a farm where you no farm a zoo where you drive around so like the monkeys get in your car and break your windscreen wipers off that sort of thing he would always wind us up <laughs> by rolling down the windows um, in the... What was it? Was it moose? Mooses? What's the plural for moose? Just moose, isn't it? I'm always really bad at this. I'm not an English student. Um, at that bit, they had, they had moose, and he'd always roll the window down. And then one time he passed me out of the car into someone else's car, someone we knew. Didn't just get me kidnapped. Um, so, yeah, he's very much been an annoying animal man. So, yeah, it's looking up. We're we're improving. The anxiety is easing, in terms of the boxels. So, yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> there was a lot to um, unpack. I was gonna say I did just keep talking. <laughs> no, it's, it's brilliant. Should get a sign that says stop. <laughs> just hold out. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Really, um, really thoughtful of you to um offer those reflections and to I guess appreciate the sacrifices that um your parents have made and they they sound like incredible people, really caring, hardworking, thoughtful. Yeah. 
and um, obviously they really loved you and your siblings. Um, what was the dynamic like between um, the siblings? Because at the start of your bio, you kind of mentioned how they were quite inspirational or annoying, uh, depending <laughs> how you look at it. Both. <laughs> I think um, I always one regret I have is that now I'm at a point where I'm old enough to look back, and I've been through a bit more. I have always been, me and my brother have always been a bit on and off. There's a six-year age gap which could could be to do with that. And I think we are just very different as well. So we didn't really get on. Um, and I, I, I do feel really bad about it because I was I was a young carer and there were times when I really did look after him and I, I always have and I've always looked out for him. There wouldn't have been any time because I think he got picked on at secondary school. If I was old enough and I was there, I would have punched someone. <laughs> really would have. I love him and I love my sister. We just didn't. We just didn't click. And I think I'm really grateful that now we do. And he will come and knock on my door after work. He gets back from work and he's like, "Sophie, how was your day?" And I'm like, "It was really good, thank you." Like, his name's Jack. Um, yeah, and it's I'm I'm. It warms me that I can be in that place, and I do regret the way I spoke to him sometimes and the way we fought. But I think now that I'm old enough, I've definitely grown out of that. Um, but yeah, my sister and my brother always really got on. Um, they were around for a bit before I was around. Um, she's the one that taught him to talk because he was nonverbal until he was about five. Mainly because she used to hit him over the head with stuff and then he'd, he'd learnt how to say no and laurel. Um, so he'd turn up to school with massive bumps on his head because she would hit him with pans, which my parents <laughs> were really, really not happy about. Um, yeah, and then I think having siblings really, really made him definitely talk he was like you guys are annoying i'm gonna learn how to speak so i can tell you to stop being annoying um yeah and we think we 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 were a little unit we really were and i think more so now we really look out for each other and i think we really care about each other um despite the age gap because i think my brother's six years six years older than me he's 25 and my sister's just turned 23 so i am the youngest by a bit um but i am their little their little one. Like when I was when they were kids, I would I was one and a half. I used to mm. go and put my hand in the cereal bowl, just steal it. My sister used to feed me rice krispies from the table, <laughs> and um, that I feel like that really does just sum up our relationship. Like I will be stealing something from her, <laughs> and then she'll offer it to me anyway. And it's like they really do look out for me, and and I just yeah, I'm 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 lucky to be a youngest sibling. I don't think I could have coped at being an oldest, but yeah, I think the dynamic was good between us. Um, so all three of you have um, achieved a lot and obviously as we know from our academic studies that um, statistics for um, perhaps people on benefits or families who are um, struggling with being made redundant isn't always the most pleasant and that's you know yeah. the heart of the social inequality yeah so with that context and with also the reality of all of your achievements um, what would you like, if you were to retrospectively look back, how were you three able to almost, like, beat the odds and beat the statistics? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think there was a lot on offer that my my mum really, really, really strived to get us the best. I think it's because my, my grandma didn't get to go to... I don't know if she went to school. Um, she taught herself how to read and write, and she taught my mum how to read and write really early. And then she... Because she had a... Uh, interesting upbringing I don't know much about it but I'm trying to find out um I think it's a bit dark but then she her goal my mum told me last year this is relevant by the way <laughs> her goal um was to 
she she really loved education. She was that was her passion. That was what she loved, and that's what she wanted everyone to have. She didn't. So I think that's what my mum inherited, and she passed that on to us. Me and my brother and my sister all loved school. Well, I mean, my brother didn't. I don't think he loved school, but he didn't love the people. Um, we found it. We knew it was important, and we knew that we had someone at home telling us it's really important. I'm really proud of you, but you can do this, and you're clever enough for this. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, so it's that you, you felt that um, that they've instilled into you the belief that you can yeah. thrive and that it is important to learn. Yeah, and it's not saying that like, oh, I'm just really hardworking and other people are lazy. Mm. It's, it's more about I also had those opportunities there. So lucky for me, I went to a decent school. I had good teachers. I really enjoyed the subjects I was doing. And then I went to a really good college. So I went to Peter Simmons, um, which is in Winchester. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's a really good college. A school with um, lots of students 4, in the same cohort. Yeah, yeah 4,000 of us. So everyone at uni always goes, oh, my friend went there. Like, do you know this person? I'm like, yeah, I know about 20 people, mate. I'm not going not gonna to lie. Didn't know them. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was really, really fortunate to go there. It was a 45-minute train every day, but it was worth it. And I did get support from the college to get the train as well, which was good. Um, and I think that for me, that was really what pushed me to Cambridge. I think I don't think if I'd gone anywhere else, I would have gone. My sister went to a much worse college than me. They didn't support her at all with her application. They weren't very good. I won't say the college for her. Um, my mum, it comes back to my mum, she really fought for us. She fought for all of us to get to where we wanted to be. And especially my brother, really, really with him, because he was told, no, you can't go to the mainstream secondary school. Because he went to a... a <coughs> like a special um, special needs primary school. So you went to one around the corner from our house. Um, not around the corner, down the road. Um, and yeah, and he wasn't, he was told he couldn't get GCSEs. And he did. And then he was told he couldn't do A-levels. So he did a, uh, what's it called? B, B-Tech, a B-Tech. Why did that get my mind? That's just, no, it wasn't in my brain. Um, he did B-Tech and biomedical science. And that was three years. And then they went, actually, I do want to do A-levels. And they said, they can't. My Did you went, always appreciate mums going above and beyond to sacrifice? I think I did. And, I, and I, there are regrets there as well, which is like, I think sometimes it was a bit much. And obviously as a child, you don't recognise that that's what it is. You don't recognise that it's for your own good. It did feel overwhelming at times when I was like, I just want to break. I don't want to do work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to work really hard. I don't want to do an extra GCSE. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do an EPQ. I don't need your help. I don't need you to throw articles at me because she is a spammer on Facebook. She sends me article after article on everything that she finds interesting. She made me a folder of printed out Guardian articles that were relevant to education in some way before I went to uni. She was like, you need to take these. And there was about four folders. And I was like, Sarah, I love you, but I can't take four folders to university I was like I can't I was like I do have to take you know textbooks and stuff like that I have to take other things um, and yeah bless her and I I am very grateful um but I didn't express it in the best ways at times and that still happens but I'm a daughter that's how mums and daughters are that's how parents and children are you don't always recognize at first but then a couple of days later or a couple of months later you'll look back and you go actually yeah and you don't have to say it Sometimes I think you just show it. So me sharing a bit of food with her is me being like, I know that sounds so stupid, but it's like my favourite food or something and I share a bit of her and it's, I think she knows or a hug 
and she, I'm not a very touchy-feely person with my family like I know she loves to like hug my sister and stuff I just I, I'll have a small hug and I'll be like I'm done now don't know why I've just never really been that much into that but I think if I hug her properly she knows she knows I love her and she's feels appreciated in those moments I think and I hope she does but yeah if I could go back I probably would have expressed it differently but <laughs> I'm very grateful that's really beautiful and um, when your sister, say, got into Oxford, um, what did that do to the morale of the family and how did that change the expectations you have for yourself? Oh, I, I think it made it seem possible, I guess. But then at the same time, it made it seem expected. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. I think a lot of people, I feel... I think that, Im- that imposter syndrome really hit hard with me as well because it hasn't been my dream really hasn't it hasn't been my dream since I was a child and you you expect it from people that go to Cambridge or Oxford you expect them to be like yeah since I was four I've wanted to go here or yeah ever since secondary school and I think I only really looked into Cambridge when my sister got into Oxford and when I went to college and I was like oh okay you know that actually this is an opportunity and for me it was more of a this isn't it's not because it's a prestigious union I'll get like blah blah like I'll just get loads of jobs it was more this is a good opportunity and I'll speak to people and I'll meet new people and I'll learn from the from people that have experienced stuff and done stuff and a lot of lecturers have been that way um so I did feel like a fraud when I got that (laughs) and I think yeah it it did change the morale I guess when she went to Oxford I think it made it a weirder dynamic because I think she really was as the as the middle child I think she was the glue she really was she was less headstrong than me she was less argumentative so if I fell out with my mum and she was there it would be resolved a lot quicker um and then she was better to like she was a better care of my brother than I am well I was because I was too young at that time I guess maybe um but yeah when she left it, it hit it hit hard it really did and then she came back for holidays but was not that long um and I think it hit my mum the most as well because with her girls and I think she lost one of her girls to Oxford and I think they they thought she changed a bit and I think as a parent that's probably so difficult to watch your kid become an adult because it is just like this thing that you've had <laughs> you're my thing and now you want to go and be your own thing <laughs> that's just, that's not all right come back um but yeah it did it did change the dynamic and then I am surprised they still wanted me to go to Cambridge because I didn't I think they didn't want the same thing to happen to me. I don't. I don't think they wanted me to become fancified. <laughs> like I don't think they wanted me to go to Cambridge and expect to come home and have caviar or something like that. My sister didn't. But I think that's what they what they saw it as <laughs> sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think it did push me more though. Her getting in. So you didn't want necessarily to go to Oxford. What did you want out of life? And at that point, you've seen that you know experienced that turning point. You've realised the real predicaments that economic struggles could yeah. have on people's tangible day to day life. What did you want to, out of life at that point? I honestly don't know. I think the the economic side of stuff definitely did push me to be like, okay, yeah, I will try my hardest to get into Cambridge because I know. My mum wants opportunities for me and I want to make her proud. It was more centred around what my parents wanted and I didn't want to think that they... I didn't want them to think they failed me if I end up in a in a tight spot with money or if I end up not achieving what I wanted to or something like that because I think that's just, as a human, especially as a parent, you're going str- to stress. And that's probably one of the reasons I don't want to have kids because I'd stress too much and annoy them. Um, but, yeah, I think... 
from what I was saying. What did you want out of life? <laughs> I think I was taking it day by day, really. I think as a teenage girl, it was mainly just like, okay, let's just try and get through this term of college. Let's try and get through GCSEs. I mean, well, COVID as well. COVID kind of put a spanner in the works because what I wanted out of life was to not be in lockdown anymore. Um, but it was a weird, it's been weird. It's uh, I, Looking back at it now, I'm like, how has this all happened in the last, what, four, five years? But yeah, I think, I didn't really know what I wanted to be at that point. I think at one point I wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah, I was going to do law at college and I changed my mind to sociology. Um, but it was more... It was more short-term thinking. I think the short-term planning was there. But I didn't really have any long-term plans. When I mean, I still don't. Like, everyone always expects, especially at Cambridge, everyone's always like, oh, so what do you want to do next? What are you going to do with this education degree? And I'm like, I don't know. Ask me in two years' time. I might have figured it out. I might not. But I'm not, I'm not here to plan for the next 20 years of my life. I'm taking it day by day. What were some of the ups and downs as a teenage girl? <sighs> um, I think... Definitely the worst bit. I mean, I think everyone always describes it. It's like a TikTok sound as well. It's like being a woman in your 20s, and I'm extending that to 19 as well, is the trenches. <laughs> I think it's just a weird spot to be in. And I think as a teenage girl, especially mental health-wise, um, I struggled a lot. It started in 2020 with food. It was not fun. I think that's just the media has ingrained that into a lot of people. What about food? just a really disordered relationship with food and I think it's abhorrent <laughs> that the amount of teenage girls that struggle with that and also teenage boys I think it's becoming a lot more common and that is horrible it's horrifying I'm not a fan of it obviously <laughs> um but yeah I think that was definitely the hard, one of the hardest points until I got to uni <laughs> and then it's I think trying to figure out who you are and as a woman as well becoming a woman and trying to figure out who you are what you want to do trying to feel liberated trying to feel like you don't have to fit in a box anymore even though you still do and then trying to battle with those like tiny moments that make you feel really pissed off on top of everything else you've got going on internally and it's like the external does really sink in at this point like I do just come very very aware of how much horrible stuff happens or how much um, inequality there is, especially in terms of sex. Um, and then how much danger there is. It's it's not safe out there. <laughs> um, and it's like in your own workplace, you can be unsafe. Um, and with people you f- you think care about you, you can be unsafe. And it's, it's so hard to navigate that it kind of feels a lot. It just feels a lot. <laughs> and then you feel a lot. And then you've got to feel a lot and do a lot and be a lot and... And then all at the same time, you're trying to figure out how the fuck do I get through this Um, whilst trying to balance relationships and whilst trying to balance uni and whilst trying to figure out what I want with my life and whilst trying to shave my legs every every other day or whilst trying to wash my hair every other day. And it's just so, so much. And it's trying to ingrain, no, uningrain that horrible narrative in your own head that you have to be a certain person or you have to do certain things to be attractive or that underlying feeling that you have to look nice to be worthy of anything. And I hate it. I hate that I actually do have that in my head because I don't want to judge other people how they look. And I don't want to be judged on how I look. I just want to be me. 
I don't want to be a photo. I don't want to be what my body looks like. I don't want to be what my skin is like. I don't want to be whether or not I have arm hair or leg hair or whatever. I want to be how I make people feel and what memories I give people and the laugh that I have and all of those details, which I think are so much more important because my brain is so much more important than anything else. And my heart is more important than anything else. And I just think that's the worst part about being a teenage girl. And obviously that applies to, to men too. It really does. I just think the societal expectation of men is drastically different in terms of looks. And I know it's still the same. There's, it's, it's different, but it's similar, I think. <laughs> so it sounds like we are almost held bondage to other people's perception, or at least what we think other people's perceptions are. Yeah. And for girls, you're saying that it's a lot about just outer appearance that are not always within our control. And mm. that in itself creates a lot of um, uncertainty and doubt and just very, yeah. lots of fluctuations and volatility in our mood is based on that. Yeah, and it's and it really is based on other people. Um, and I wish it wasn't... I, and you know that thing where it's like you see someone who's, like I was saying earlier, about being unapologetically myself. I'm still not that point. I really wish I was. Because I wish I could... Like yesterday on the coach... I was on the coach on the way up here. And I was like, oh, I'm really hungry. I've just gotten out of work. I haven't eaten that much today. But I don't want to get my um I don't want to get my like my dinner out because I don't want people to complain if I'm eating something that smells. Because I had hummus and like avocado. I made a little grain bowl, it was great. And I had some vegetarian stuff, like corn on top of it. And it was really good. I was proud of myself. I was like, this looks incredible. I cannot wait to scram this. And I was sat there and in the back of my head, very loudly, it was like, other people are gonna complain why are you eating in front of people all that and it's that monologue where it's like actually stop it like let me live let me let me just eat this meal mm. and it's i wish that voice that i think everyone has it whether or not it's subtle or very loud it's there does the knowledge of what you just said of everyone has it is subtle not loud does that give you any relief or comfort i was like what we were talking about earlier with the rationally you know something and you're like yeah i'm, I'm intelligent i i know that that's stupid but emotionally you're like you still feel it yep. you feel smothered and overwhelmed and it's like it's really hard to strike that balance Can't especially relate. with mental health it's like so hard because especially as a as a cambridge student as someone who who's pretty educated and i'm sure you feel the same it's like rationally i'm 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 actually quite smart it's like what i have a brain in there but then it's like my heart feels louder sometimes or that weird little worry path in my brain feels like it's dominating everything. Um, and I think that is one of the biggest things I've learned at uni, really rational, rationality and versus emotion and like empathy and being very sensitive. I'm a big softie, I, I feel a lot. And that's been so much <laughs> to say the least. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any consolation in the fact that everyone has it. I think everyone knows that. But yeah, here we are. Like I go to the if I go to the gym, I'm like, oh, everyone's looking at me, everyone's judging me for only being able to lift 10, 10 kilograms on a bench press. Like, I can't even get the thing out. Oh my god, how do I move this? What what if what if like the mark of like my sweat is on the chair? What if people what if people judge me? And it's like actually that guy over there is lifting like 80 kilograms. That guy over there is doing sit-ups, someone's over there struggling with something, someone's having a chat. No one gives a shit. <laughs> No one cares what I'm doing right now. I'm a teenage girl in the gym. No one's looking at me, you know? And it's like, I know that. But yet here I am 
sat looking around like, who's, who's looking at me? Who's looking at me? Just go on my phone like, what if someone's looking at what music I'm listening to? Oh, I should probably skip the She's a Brightest Star from Nativity soundtrack thing. Like, I shouldn't listen to that in the gym. What if someone sees it? You know, and it's like that constant thing in your head. As a human, it's a human condition to worry. Mm. And worry and worry and worry until there's a point where you stop worrying. It's mm. really and interesting. it becomes too much. And I find with, like, lots of people used to say that you hate being on alert that you're being watched but also part of us also wants some attention like it's a yep, really it's a battle paradox of yeah. if no one watches you and if no one cares then you feel like oh am i not attracting yeah. attention am i invisible yeah. <laughs> yeah it's really horrible to strike that balance mm. because it's like if i'm in the gym i'm in my little in my little sports sports set i want someone to look at me and compliment how much i'm lifting i want someone to look at me and be nice to me mm. but the moment someone's judging me i'm gonna stop panicking so it's just, it's so contradictory. And I think that's the case in everyday life. It's so like, who were the role models who you looked to, whether there were people you knew or people you didn't know that helped you to deal with these um, so-called human conditional, you know, stresses? Um, I think mainly throughout my childhood, it's definitely my sister. She really did. Um, she was like my rock, really. And then my friends from home, I've known them for years, especially Neve. It's about funny. Um... She, she was really N- N-I-A-M-H. N-I-A-M-H. Yeah. yeah. Weird. It's quite funny. I might just call her Niv on here now because <laughs> everyone does that. Or Neem. Yeah. She says Niamha as well. <laughs> quite funny. I'm lucky to have quite an easy name. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think definitely over the past two years, she's been really that for me because um, as I was mentioning, the first year of my uni has been very tumultuous. A lot of mental health stuff. Um, I think it was a long time coming. But yeah, it's looking up. Uh, but she's been there for me and then I think definitely this year at uni um my friend Lily I met her in we we only started being friends at the end of Lent term early Easter and she has become one of the most inspirational people in my life I think she definitely I look to her for most of the time when it comes to something I look to her and I think what would she do what would she say to me right now because you just meet those people in your life that they know you inside out. They really do. And they didn't even ask. They just do. And I think that's... It's this beautiful thing where it's like... I mean, there are just certain people you are meant to meet. And I and I don't think... I don't mean that in a romantic way. I don't believe in that. I think you make a relationship with someone in that sense. But I think friends... Platonic soulmates is one of the loveliest things that I think anyone could ever experience. And I think it's what I've definitely developed over the past two years especially as an adult I think it's been so much easier to what do people like about you I don't know I don't really know I think all of the stuff I've been through has made me funnier (laughs) so I have some sort of comedic value and I think I am very much like I'm very empathetic I think I'm good at listening I'm good at giving advice but I'm not good at taking my own advice so I think I'm not a role model to other people in terms of making life decisions I'm very much not um, but I think what I'd like to think that people like about me is that when I give someone a bit of my heart, I give it to them completely. So with every one of my friends, there's not a day that goes past where they don't know how I feel about them, I think. And I may not say it all the time, but they know I love them and they know that I'm there for them and they know that I'm there to make an awful dad joke or say something horrific or say slay too many times or just do something very me. And I, li- I like to think that that's what people like about me. 
but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so in terms of like your sister, you know, she went to Oxford, you yep. went to Cambridge, and then she came to Cambridge <laughs> during your first year. Yeah, she you, stole my thunder. <laughs> did you um, catch up with her often at uni? And um, what advice did she give you about um, surviving and thriving in an institution like um, Cambridge? Yeah, I think I get asked a lot because when I say that we both go to Cambridge, a lot of people, well, we both went, she's done now, she's finished her master's, but people are always like, oh, you guys must be really clever and, oh, did you see her loads then? And I'm like, actually, I think I only saw her eight times, maybe, altogether, which could be a lot. But I think three or four of those were when I was in hospital because I was really ill. Um, but I don't, I don't remember. I don't think we talked much about actually being at Cambridge. I think it was more just having that comfort there and that little bit of home because I'm definitely a family in home as like people, not a place. Um, so it was nice to have that there, especially in such a crazy world and that Cambridge bubble. And it was like that little gap in the bubble where my sister was there. Mm. I was like, okay, well, there's a there's a channel back. Mm. There's a channel back out of this here. And we just catch up. I think we had dinner at the Oak Bistro down by, oh, it's by one of the churches, I can't remember what it's called. The big junction, but mm. she took me out for dinner there after my birthday when we went back to uni. Mm. Um, and then she came to see me at Addenbrooks <laughs> when I was in there with swollen tonsils. It was it was a great time. Um, but yeah, I think it was, I, I don't know how everyone else did it. And I think, I think also I kind of developed sisters on my own accord at uni. I think definitely womanhood kicked in for all of us like we were there for each other and we looked out for each other especially with my like female friends so it was it, yeah it was just she was just one of my sisters there I guess but <laughs> yeah it was good to have her there it, although at first I wasn't a fan of it but when she announced that she was going before results day as well so she found out she was got onto the masters about a month before I found out if I got in or not mm. and I was like so now I have to get in because you've gone to Oxford and Cambridge <laughs> And now I'm going to have to do a master's and I, I keep making the jokes. I'm going to have to go and do a post-grad course in America at one of the Ivy Leagues or something like that, just to one-up her. <laughs> Don't really want to, but I might just do it to spite her. Um, that's just what younger siblings do. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's been, it's been good to have her there. Fantastic. And what do you do in your free time? Like, or how do you study outside of, you know, set hours? Mm. I feel like my approach, to, my approach to learning is very, very fleeting. I think I'm hardworking, but I'm also very, very. I get very bored very easily. So if it's something I enjoy, I'm in love with it. I'm learning it. I'm reading about it. I'm really committing time to it. So I remember a character education essay I was writing about. I found a political hole in it. It was like the funding. Where was the funding coming from? It was from this neoliberal right wing group in America. Mm. I was like, oh, I love this. And I was like, I reading fifty articles about it. And then I got back to uni. I was supposed to have written it over the Christmas break, and I wrote it in a day because I was like smashing this essay out. I was like, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. But then I got an essay about speak about language acquisition in children, and I was like. <laughs> and I was sat there with my <laughs> Zotero up with no readings on it nothing had been done and I was sat there and I was like language acquisition is look at the definition like, it was just yeah. like what am I doing here if I'm passionate about it I love it. the character yeah. one. it was really good it was the 
JTF? Jane, yeah, JTF, yeah. yeah. John Temple, yeah. Templeton Foundation. Oh, so interesting. And there was the... It was the, the, there was that paper on the... as well, yeah, Duckworth. Yeah. Duckworth, Andrew oh, Duckworth. I just loved it. Yeah. Might just go back and well, read that. the readings had the mind map good. of all the funding and the different yes. stakeholders oh, yeah, 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 and the people. Yeah. I found it's it really the interesting. The fact you still remember that from... Because it was first, first year, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I really enjoyed that. That's Hopefully probably, I'll remember it. <laughs> that's probably my favourite kind of intellectual interest in education is like character education and well-being. How do we promote virtue... Yeah, you know um, the Colborne, the six other uh, the stages of education. It was interesting. Colberg, Colberg, Colberg. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No. That was very much what my school kind of offered as well with the character education. It was that kind of unique selling point. So I kind of came with that bit of background yeah. and that. And some of the stakeholders were actually quite linked with my school. So oh. it was really interesting. I'm glad you found that helpful as well. Yeah, I was. I did end up in some sort of loophole. No, not loophole. What's it called? It all comes down to. These are the right things to do, but yeah. who's going to support who's, it? Who's going to back it? Who's going to say what the right things to do are? And mm. how are they put in charge? And uh, where's the corruption at? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> so um, in terms of like, again, back to school, I guess, you know, you, you were taking the train for like 45 minutes. What did you do on the train? And did you get much free time? Because I guess travelling would have taken up mm-hmm. you know two hours of your day well i used to do i'll start because basically i when i was a kid i did gymnastics since i was four you were coaching weren't you uh yeah i, I ended up coaching as well That's so i did cool. gymnastics when i was four and then i ended up I, I think i was 14 when i started working so i got a job with that i was a homegrown coach they called me <laughs> and because it was basically like having a spare set of parents as bev and julian they ran this little home gym in Portsmouth it was lovely it was really good um and then I had to stop because I got injured so I crushed my toe in 2020 <laughs> with a trampoline leg never go near a trampoline again like the like school ones where they fold out the metal leg kind of like Olympic trampolines so I was folding one out and it crushed my toe and then after that I didn't really do gymnastics anymore so for a bit at college when I was doing the 45 minute train I was still going I was trying to get back into it and I was like first of all I get home at like 6pm most nights I'm leaving at 6am getting to college I'm going in all day I'm in Winchester which is fairly far away from my house I don't have time I did cheerleading at college I did do that that was every Friday um and then I was going to the gym at that point I was really enjoying that it was just my little walk along 20 minutes to my gym um but yeah I, com- I competed at a cheer competition last year that's quite fun very different world I mean, I did try and take up cheer at uni as well. I got onto the Cougars, <laughs> um, but then I got poorly, so I had to not because I wasn't allowed to do contact sports anymore. And I was like, kind of contact sport? I don't know. Is cheer a contact sport? Of course. But I thought, I'll, I'll chance it and not. And then I did rowing afterwards, but not a rower. I'm not claiming to be a rower. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't have much spare time at college. Um, I've always been interested in like clothes. So I used to go shopping a lot. I'm very much a charity shopper or like a, like if a family member has old clothes, I'm like, give them to me now. Why, why clothes? I don't know. I've just always loved them. I think when I was nine, um, you know, as a kid, when you have like 10 different career changes every day, you're like, I want to be this, I want to be that. I was really stuck on the idea of being a fashion designer. really was. I used to get my mum to buy me Vogue subscriptions. So I got Vogue every month for a year for my birthday. I got a mannequin. They got me my little pink John Lewis sewing machine and I used to have fabrics and I used to just make stuff. 
and I really enjoyed it. I, I think I've always been quite creative in the sense of making things and then being able to look at them and feel fulfilled. Um, but yeah, I don't know why I've loved clothes. I always have. Um, like, I think when I have a good outfit on, I feel good. Or when I'm wearing a bright colour or I'm wearing something and someone compliments it and I go, yeah, I got it for two pounds. <laughs> then I feel like I have the biggest ego on the planet <laughs> when it comes to that. So I think that's definitely where it came from. Um, so I did some sewing. But yeah, I didn't have many other hobbies. Oh, wait, no. I, I don't, <laughs> why am I forgetting that? I ran a small business for a bit. I was wow. a entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> I made jewellery out of wire um, and crystals and... I made rings because that's what everyone was doing at the time <laughs> and I made beaded rings and then I made necklaces and I've made some bracelets recently and it's kind of I've still got all the stuff for it so what I do now is um if one of my friends has a birthday I'll make them some jewelry so I made my friend a pair of amethyst, amethyst earrings and a bracelet that's really nice and then all my co-workers I <laughs> I've managed to give them all a bracelet as well <laughs> and I just I really enjoy like sitting there and like put love into personal, something yeah you know, and it's like I sat there and one of my friends at work she's called Amy she loves Taylor Swift, and so do I. So I made her a Taylor Swift bracelet. So I just put all different colours for all her different albums. On that albums. note, then, has there been any particularly meaningful gifts that you've received? Um, I have to think. It's difficult. It's difficult. Because a lot of it is about timing, right? Like, getting yeah. it from the right person at the right time. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. So I had a, I got into a relationship beginning of uni, which probably was a bit too soon. And he was, he was very lovely, he still is, and I hope we can still be friends. Um, but he gave me a very thoughtful gift. He made me a little, like, fold-out box. It was quite sweet. Um, and then I love I love letters, I really do, like like notes. I really love that. I love when someone writes something, and it's for you, and it's for your eyes, and it's not a message on Snapchat or, <laughs> like, Instagram. Like, it's a personalised like, taking the time they've got a piece of paper out and they've written to you. Because I think writing is such a... It's a lost art. <laughs> um but i yeah i love like it just feels more personal mm. to write not like a, it doesn't necessarily have to be a love letter <laughs> but like i just i just love i think i love when people write down their feelings and and express what they can't vocally mm. um so every time i've received a note i've kept it you keep it yeah um and i've kept every birthday card over, like over the past five years, I think mm. I've still got them. I think my mum's tried to get me to bin them. So what 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 do you think makes a good handwritten note? Is it just honesty? Is it just the messiness and the chaoticness that defines each of us? Mm. Like what, like which of the cars and have touched you the most, and are they what people expect it to be? I think it's the vulnerability, and also almost like the confession of like. You know, this is how I feel about you. So, like, with my oldest friends, they'll they'll write down how they're grateful for me or they'll write down a memory they remember. And it's just that hole into someone's heart of, like, where I sit there, that's how it feels. It feels like they're telling me, this is where you are, this is how I feel about you, it's never going to change. And I and it's permanent. You write something down, it's permanent, unless you write it in pencil. But <laughs> in a pen, in a birthday card that I'm keeping, it's yep. permanent. And especially as someone I, I'm mentally mentally ill <laughs> but I also have this this thing where I do doubt I do doubt a lot whether or not people enjoy being around me and I, I do have that constant like I've I, it's been described as chronic self-esteem issues <laughs> um but I love the idea that someone could write down how they're feeling and it won't it won't change necessarily I mean it can and I think a lot of the time the meaningful gifts I've received have been from boyfriends which is disgusting ew <laughs> um 
but they still mean something because it was how someone felt about who I was at the time. Mm. And just because that those words don't apply anymore doesn't mean that someone else doesn't feel them or doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. It just means I'm not that person anymore because I'm not going to be who I was when I was 16. I'm like, when I had a boyfriend when I was 16 and, and he wrote me a little note, it's not going to feel the same. It's not going to be the same because mm. I'm not that person anymore and I'm glad I'm not. Um, but yeah, I think... I, lo- I just love that part of it. And I and I, it really does mean a lot to me when someone writes to me instead of, like, just chucking money at me. Because I feel like gifts, to a certain extent, the more money you spend on someone, the less it means, I think. Mm. I don't think you need to spend money to show that you care about someone. It's the time I think, the Yeah, because that's why I love making jewellery for people. Or what I wanted to do is make, um, like, my friend a, a top for her birthday. Like, mm. I wanted to sew her a top. So I might still try and do that, but my sewing machine is buried under stuff at the moment. <laughs> um, but I think if I've put a little bit of myself into something, whether that be a note, a piece of jewellery, um, mm. uh, I don't even know, a drawing, I can't draw, a poem, um, something like that, it means so much more. Than... Interesting too about what you said about like it shows vulnerability as yeah. well, you know, especially I think speaking as a as a guy sometimes it can feel hard to yeah. express emotions and you, you kind of when you write the card you're like well what if they show it to someone else what yeah. if it's released ever like back I, I to think, that anxiety of everyone caring too much about like <laughs> what everyone thinks of them yeah yeah but when you've written that down and you're saying like what if they show it to someone you're accepting that you're going okay well this is how i feel and i'm going to claim it yeah i'm going to claim yeah. that vulnerability i'm going to take that back that and permits, it. yeah and also because what you're saying about being a man and speaking about emotions it's so important and I just I wish it was different because every guy I've spoken to ever Mm. has always said that they found it really hard and 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 it's a shame and I think um with what you're saying like when writing it down you can express what you can't say so I've recently just written like a handwritten apology letter and it's like when I'm writing like my hands are almost shaking it's like oh my god this is now permanent but I almost felt like you just got to believe that there is goodness that if you are honest and yeah. if you mean it, then people won't take it out of context. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but and, it, and you can tell when it's how it's been written as well. Like I, I think if someone texted me saying sorry, I think texting is the worst invention ever. It's great to be like, yeah, I'm around the corner. Let me in your house now. I don't want to knock on the door. Mm. But there's no intonation there. There's no expression there's just like i mean there's emojis but what's that gonna do (laughs) oh i'm really sorry sad face (laughs) i'm sorry i accidentally hit hit, hit you (laughs) sad face like it's like there's nothing there you know and i think of a letter even though it's not spoken it's written since the times when you said you've been hurt by other people whatever context that is would you have appreciated and written an apology from them and what would have made a great written apology or have you received any apologies um kind of i think there's definitely situations where that wouldn't have i wouldn't have let that slide but i think it's a step no matter what if you write to someone and you take that time out of your day to write and say i'm really sorry about this blah, blah, blah. and even if it was the smallest thing like you just said something that really upset them or blah, blah blah and i think it just shows that that understanding that you've done something wrong and it took you more time than it would have to text saying, really sorry, kiss, kiss. Like, it just, it's just more, it feels more human rather than 
robotic in a way. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think I've ever received an apology letter. Do you want to receive apology letter for the times that people have hurt you? Does would that make a difference? I don't think so. I think I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> I mean, I think there's that forgive and forget battle because I'd like to forget more than forgive with certain stuff because there's just inexcusable ways that people have behaved or yeah and I think there's it goes back to that thing of not wanting it to happen to other people Mm. I don't really care anymore I don't want to be associated with you if you've hurt me or you've took advantage of me or blah 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 I don't care Mm. I don't want I don't want your apology stick it up your ass don't want it (laughs) go give it to someone else or just don't do that again to mm. anyone else. You don't need to apologise, you need to change. Mm. And I think in in situations where it's not an apology that's needed, it's change entirely and, and a reversal of that behaviour, then that's not a case for a letter mm. of apologies to someone because I think you've gone too far. But in other situations, I think, yeah, it would be nice to receive a letter and it would feel a lot easier to forgive someone, I think. But... Mm-hmm. Interesting. Have you ever written an apology to someone? Um, I think so. I think a couple of times. Not over anything massive. Um, I think, and sometimes it's not even shared. So I, I've gotten this trait for the past like year and a bit. Um, especially after I came out of that relationship, I, it's not poetry. It's just like writing down how I feel. Um, I've definitely done that a lot more, and it's more of an apology to my to them through. You know, I was trying to phrase it right. It's not to them. They'll never see it. Like, it's a it's a letter I won't like send. A cathartic. Yeah, like, it's like a, I'll write that down. Or a lot of the time it will come into it? my head. I don't know. I think I just doubt the fact that it sounds all right. Or I just feel like they won't, they won't appreciate it. Or it just seems a bit stupid or old-fashioned. Or I don't know. But do you feel guilty that you perhaps don't send that often, though? No, I think because I'll just resort to, like, speaking to them or mm. saying something else. But I've never done anything that awful. <laughs> but I think, Good. yeah, I think in looking to the future, it's definitely... I think it's a good outlet. I love writing stuff down. I think every time something comes in my head that sounds good, I'll write it down on my phone, mm. um, which is why I have no storage. Um, <laughs> and I think one day I'd love to look back, especially because I've been through a hard time and I wrote during that time. I'd love to look back and write maybe a maybe when I'm rich and famous or write a memoir. Like this was poems I wrote when I was sad. <laughs> <laughs> or not poems, just words. And it's kind of just like me on a page. Like it's me in a book. It's me summarized <laughs> so that you can stomach it. <laughs> but So if someone were to write a biography of you at this point in time, what do you think like the titles or subtitles would be? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that's actually kind of embarrassing, but I did try and start writing something on the train yesterday. An autobiography. Yeah, well, not, not really an auto. It was more about to. It was supposed to be a story because I've been reading a lot. I've been really enjoying it. Um, I read Lessons in Chemistry. I don't know if you've read that. It's really good. Really good. It's about a woman trying to get into science in the fifties. Really good. Um, but yeah, it prompted me to think. Actually, I'll write something down. I'm never gonna finish it. I'm never gonna actually properly write it. But I was like, what two and a half hour coach? <laughs> <laughs> I can come back to it one day. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't know what it'd be called. I really don't so I think know. it's like what, what I'm thinking about, you know, the last sentence in your bio about like, 
you know, like the, the, the expectation of figuring out your, you know, extraordinary dreams in yeah. that you put in quotes, but just feeling pretty like ordinary. Like I'm just trying yeah. to understand more about that tension between the innate aspiration we will have to progress yeah. and to be important and to achieve things versus oftentimes most of us are quite um normal and that yeah. that's okay there's nothing wrong with it yeah. but how I, do you kind of grapple with the pull, push and pull in that regard yeah it's difficult to like express i guess i think i don't really know if i do grapple with it i think i'm very much like i flip between the two um so one day i'll be like oh okay this is good i can do this and i'll have like a sudden burst of ambition and like hope for myself um and then other times i'll just be like ugh <laughs> ugh i just it feels like a dead end and especially like in first year of uni like i was feeling very depressed um <laughs> and it just felt like there was nothing there for me anymore and it was like is there anything tangible that you could visualize now that if you could achieve then you will feel like you're not that ordinary like perhaps it's publishing a book perhaps it's getting a job perhaps it's i don't know like is there anything mm. concrete that you can point out as if oh if i get that then well i think i'll rephrase your question i think i don't want to be extraordinary i want being ordinary to be good enough you know what i mean like mm. i think the the expectation to have extraordinary dreams and be like oh yeah if i achieve this i'll be really good and i'll be worthy so that's of something. the problem that yeah i just want to make i just want to make people smile you know, I want to make someone feel good about themselves. I want to smile at someone on the tube and they smile back at me. Mm. I want to walk down the street and compliment someone and not fear that they're going to go weird. <laughs> um, but I just want it to be the smaller stuff that actually matters instead of what car you have, what house you live in, how much money you have. And, and I think it's such a shame that we lose sight of that as well. And I think people forget to smile at people. And people forget to take time for themselves, to write, to read, to draw, to, to do whatever to nurture the soul, because that is important. And, yeah, and I think... Are you spiritual? Um, I don't think so. I think my grandma really was, and I think I inherited a bit of that from her, because I think there's definitely part of that woman in my heart somewhere, like in my soul somewhere. I do believe we have, like, a soul. I don't know. So I'm when not we well die, So when we die, you think our soul you know what happens when we die because well, it's energy it's transfer of energy and i think energy will carry stuff i'm not i'm not scientific but <laughs> that's my explanation does god exist could god exist i don't know i'd like to believe it but i think i think people are in their own right to believe whatever they want that makes them feel happy and i think that why can't it all exist you know what i mean it's like there could be we're all living in our own different worlds. This isn't the same planet for everyone. Like, of course there's going to be someone on someone's shoulder. And I and I read this one um, thing in this book called Tuesdays with Maury, which is another recommendation. It really cha- it, it, it changed my life. It's about this guy with ALS um, or motor neurons in the UK. And um, he teaches this other guy who he lectured, he was a university lecturer, and he meets him on Tuesdays. And he talks about life. And he said something about Buddhists and how they believe that there's a little bird living on their shoulder every day. And he says, imagine that little bird is asking you, are you being who you want to be today? And I think that really stuck with me. I read that book two and a half years ago and that quote goes around my head every day. And I think there's little bits of every faith and every belief system and every opinion that can be taken and put somewhere else 
it's like a really mismatched puzzle and I think that's what we all are we're all taking bits of different things and different people and I learned something from this person and I take my coffee with vanilla and oat milk because my friend made me a vanilla oat latte once and I loved it and she loved it so I'm like okay well I'm carrying that piece of her with me and it's that puzzle of us that becomes everyone else and then it just expands and expands and expands and you become so much more than yourself and yeah I think that really should be something that everyone reminds themselves of every day is it quite beautiful to think about that way yeah. that every interaction we have we take something and we give something yeah. and the world because i'll take just something changes. away from this and you'll take something away from this and then tomorrow i'll take something else from someone else mm. not physically i'm not actually gonna thieve <laughs> anything um, <laughs> but like i love that the you people can take that the know, ice with you <laughs> the cup i'll keep the straw <laughs> this, you dropped yours on the floor <laughs> so you can take the germs on that coffee shop <laughs> um, but i think and it's like that that going back to the thing about God and I think what we want to know is that the people we love and that ourselves will live on but I think we will anyway so I don't need to believe in a God and I respect anyone that does um and I think those people live on with the people that live on and then they'll just keep going because everyone knows each other it's really strange I'm actually related to someone I work with now I came back he has the same last name as me and he's lovely and we were really getting on and I was acting like a younger sister anyway. And then it turns out, because he was saying he's, he's from a bit near me with farmers. And I just think the world is so small that I'm related to someone. So we have like the same great, 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 great grandfather or something. Um, but yeah, I think you're going to meet people and you're going to make an impact on their life no matter what you do. Whether it be you actually interact with them or not. I could literally have smiled at someone on the tube. I'm going back to the tube again because I was smiling at everyone on the tube. I don't know if that's a weird thing for people to do, but I'm a smiler. You're going to affect people's lives whether or not you like it. So you might as well try and do it in a good way. Do you believe in fate then? um, Like what I was saying with platonic friendships, I think, yeah, I do believe in fate there. But I also think, because it's like that whole thing about family and then the friends of the family you choose. And I really do believe that you can choose who you want to be friends with. You, if you put as much in as you're getting or you put more than you're getting or whatever you invest into a friendship or a relationship, you get it back in whether that be from them or from the world or in terms of how you feel. I really do believe that you can also choose your own fate. I don't think anyone's destined to do well or do badly or anything like that. Um, and I like that. I think it's, it offers hope and I think hope is really important to me as well. It's my middle name too. And it's because my, the story is quite cute. My great grandfather, he passed away the morning I was born. So my great grandma, she called me the, what did she call me? I was just her, her replacement for him. She said that his soul was given to me and she kind of just believed that I was really special. And I, I really like to remember that sometimes when I'm not feeling too good about myself. You know what? This, this old woman who didn't really know me that well, but she loved me no matter what. I was special to her, so I should be special to myself. Um, and then basically at his funeral, my mum still hadn't decided a uh, middle name for me. She said what the guy said, the I can't remember what they're called, what people that look celebrant. Someone said at the end, he said, and when it gets dark, just remember there will always be hope. And she went, hmm, it's a good name. So that's how I ended up my middle name. And I think... I'll remind myself that more because I don't. It's like, you know, I'm actually named after the leaving sentence of someone delivering a eulogy <laughs> about a really incredible man. So I might as well remind myself because it's in my name. So 
And Sophie means wisdom, well, Sophia means wisdom in Greek, so I should remember that as well when I'm being a bit not wise. Wise and hopeful. Yeah, it's a combination. <laughs> but, yeah, I think fate, hope, all of those nice little words, they all have meaning to different people, so... In the context of giving you a legacy worth interview, you know, we've covered a fair bit. Um, obviously, there's always more to cover, but, you know, just to capture a snapshot of where you are now and hopefully you can look back on this recording with lots of meaning or something concrete and tangible um, that gives you hope as well and hopefully. Um, is there anything else you want to include in this recording or else I've got some questions to wrap up? Um don't think so. I don't think I have any wise words, ironically. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think, yeah, I think one thing I'll take away from the first year of uni specifically is that as much as other people are really important, no one is more important than yourself. But just because you need to prioritise yourself doesn't mean you need to leave other people behind or do stuff to appease people to make yourself feel better and so and I think just that's something I want people to remember I do because it's just so hard to to prioritize that but yeah what are some nicknames that you've received oh god I was talking about this the other day I got um my sister calls me sofa my mum calls me fifi which is ugh. um soapy soph only my best only my friend holly that I've known since I was a kid calls me Soph really and then a few more people do now, which I've accepted. I've learned to love. But until I was 16, I think it was just my friend Holly. Um, but then Sophie Boxtroll. Um, oh, yeah, I think that's it. I don't really get nicknames, to be honest. My friend at work calls me Champ, and I call him Chimp. It's quite funny. But, yeah, I don't think I have the name for, ni- the, the name for nicknames, really. It's quite a difficult one. <laughs> um, Favourite breakfast? Ooh, I, I'm very much a, like, because especially, like, my my stomach stuff, I have to eat certain foods. So I am very consistent in what I eat. So I do have the exact same dinner pretty much every day. And at uni, I had the exact same breakfast. So it would be granola, but no milk, because I don't like milk. And then it would be probiotic yoghurt, <laughs> uh, frozen raspberries, because the fridge I had in my room at uni would freeze stuff underneath it. So I'd freeze my raspberries uh, and then some sort of nuts and honey and chia seeds. Something you'll never do again. Oh, um, re- rebound and get into a relationship too quickly. <laughs> um, best place for a first date or best thing to do on a first date? Ooh. I feel like I would love to go on a dog walk. I know that sounds so stupid, but like a dog walk and then you end up at a cafe. That would be great. If your Google searches were revealed to the public, um, what would, yeah, how, how, how would life change? Probably not that much, really. It would just be like um, <laughs> Zoella's vlogs on YouTube at the moment, uh, top 10 co- pop culture moments. Um, <laughs> recently, a lot of Google Maps <laughs> for some reason. I'm in London. I'm navigating my way around as a tourist. But yeah, or like, how to oh like what actors are in a certain film that is a big one in my search history it's like oh what's this actor also in if you could have a one hour conversation with anyone past or present who would that be oh that's a really difficult one 
I think my grandma, like, because it's been a while, I'm not the same person I was when she passed away. Do you have a celebrity crush? Ooh. Who was it? I used to love Leonardo DiCaprio when I was a kid. Really loved him. But I don't think I have one anymore. I do find, um, what's his name? I'm watching Gossip Girl at the moment. So, um, the guy that plays Joe Goldberg in You, that guy. Can't remember his name, but the people will know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, final rapid fire question is, um, what's your wildest prediction about the future? Ooh. Maybe not even a rapid fire question. <laughs> oh, my wildest prediction. Oh. I mean, I hope. This is a hope, actually. My wildest prediction is that me and my friend, Holly, we're going to get married platonically so that we don't have to marry men. And we're going to move into a massive studio apartment in New Zealand. I'm going to go and do charity work and work in schools and do lots of good things that make me feel good. And she's going to be a freelance artist. And then our other friend, Neve, is going to come with us when she's on tours doing music production. So, and everyone can come visit. But yeah, that's my prediction slash really, really optimistic hope for the future. Um, lots of people have made a big impact on your life as the second last. Um, do you want to just give some words of gratitude to your parents, for example, your sister, your brother, your good friends? Just make it personalised, you know, all the things we talked about of what makes a gift or an act of kindness meaningful and just... Yeah, I think it would be nice for you to keep that for now. I think, yeah, I think every person that's ever managed to put up with me <laughs> and my awful sense of humour, I'm very grateful for. And I, I hope they know that and I don't want to ever forget that. I love them lots. And I think they all, everyone I've met and cared about has a massive space in my heart. I think I have a massive heart. Um, and also I told Andre I'd, I'd give him a shout out because he asked me to give him a shout out, so... Um, he also told me I was joking around telling him I was just going to make, make up loads of rumours about him but <laughs> I will just say that he's definitely someone that you, sh- you should have a chat with he's an interesting one <laughs> but yeah I think that's that's about it I'm very grateful and I think people people should know that but yeah so I guess a final question you know always with the wider context of all the things that you have been through you know being the youngest child of three you know, grew up with the family in education. So I'm, I'm guessing, you know, your family has devoted a lot to public service, to helping other people and that sense mm. of care and compassion yeah. had really passed on to you um, from such a young age. And um, to have that um, relationship, you know, with your sister and your older brother and going through, you know, moments of perhaps not getting along and not appreciating each other, but always... Um, coming back to each other and feeling that strength and love of a family um, to, you know, actually for your brother to always defy expectation, for your sister to always um, overachieve and to seem to be a step ahead of you, such as, you know, getting into Oxford and, you know, doing another master at Cambridge, um, but also for you to tangibly see the sacrifice that your parents have made, you know, especially um, after dad had been unfairly made um, redundant and to really see how life can just change in an instant, such as an illness, such as a passing away, such yeah. as just some odd occurrence that you just cannot predict and and really feeling that, you know, class inequality and how that tangibly affects our um, life chances and opportunities. Um, so to go through that turning point to really first hand experience that um that that 
um, that change and that um, um, for, for you to really get it, the, the common predicaments that so many of us seem to face with um, our modern political system or economic structure, where, you know, the inequality, where a, a few just have yeah. a lot, whereas yeah. most people just don't have much. Um, so for you to develop those um, left-wing political views as well, then to go through, you know, a tumultuous period as a teenage girl, to have, you know, the, the common struggles of, you know, body image, food, bullying, yeah. um, being very self-conscious about everything, you know, the male gaze or whatever it is, and just to constantly feel like you are observed and judged, which is obviously not a ideal position for anyone to be in, but not always knowing how to deal with that. Um, anxiety, self-esteem, mm. you know, all the things that we've talked about, even though we know that most people, if not everyone, probably yeah. experiences a fair degree of that. But just because we know it rationally doesn't mean that we emotionally can um, bypass it. But then to also you know, value education to realise the importance of learning and for mum to really hone that into you with all those Guardian articles and forwarding you and caring about you. The 50,000 notifications. <laughs> um, also for her to, you know, be a cleaner and to, 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 to see the difference in lifestyle of the really rich family and them just throwing away clothes that are perfectly in good condition but they yeah. don't really need it but for you to I guess develop that passion in fashion and to, yeah. to, to think about maybe that is something that you could do to to leverage your kind of creativity and to make a difference in that sense um, but also to you know have the change of heart of maybe wanting to be a lawyer maybe want to be a teacher maybe want to do this and constantly change your mind which is um, really good and to be you know influenced by you know uh, British pop culture, you know, with YouTube and social media, thinking about your dreams, about being extraordinary, but also realizing actually being ordinary is mm. is nothing ordinary. You know, Good we're enough. all unique. Um, to go through those um, early relationships that you've had, the change in life, I, I can see you shivering. <laughs> Shuddered. <laughs> Um, but to also, you know, have those good relationships with like teachers and the yeah. platonic soulmates and getting to Cambridge and, you know, meeting great people, um, you Just know. that they're all right people. They're all right people. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best, actually, especially that Andre is <laughs> such a nightmare. <laughs> um, but also... Um, you know, having those uh, ferocious debates about feminism, about um, class inequality, and just helping more people to have the wider awareness of the wider predicaments that people were facing. Um, with all of those things in mind, and also, you know, summer museum working, um, volunteering uh, for as a mentor, for example, doing gymnastics, coaching as well. Um, trying out all the different things and still contemplating what you want out of life and doing a really pretty fascinating education degree where you're constantly asked whether you want to be a teacher. <laughs> um, but also to, I guess, just taking all that into mind, um, you know, the typical final questions like, you know, what's one message quote or saying you wish every educator would promote and every child would internalise? But I feel like you've touched on a lot of mm -hmm. the lessons about yeah. hope, about wisdom, about caring for people about writing a handwritten note about you know go above and beyond and revealing yeah. that vulnerability and to serve and to volunteer but what are some questions that you wish more people would think about or ask you or ask other people mm. how can we progress more i know obviously we're all imperfect and we all yeah. are in our own little bubble but what are what do you think are the questions that we should all think more and ask more and that can all help us to be more 
aware to get it. Yeah, to get it. Um, I think the main one is just like, it sounds so generic, but it's just critically think everything. Because we overthink stuff anyway. So why aren't, why aren't we extending that to, why do I think that? Why am I thinking this? What belief is that based in? And I think more people should wear their heart on their sleeve when it comes to that. And yeah, it's okay to not know stuff. But that's why we're asking questions. Because if you don't ask questions, how are you ever going to know? Bring it back to me now. <laughs> And the paradox. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it back to Crew for the Weights Year One, which we both love. Um, Plato, gonna big up Plato. It's you. You have to ask questions about everything. Question everything. Trust no one. No, just <laughs> make it really pessimistic. But yeah, I think it's it's that questioning stuff, and then I think most importantly, it's like reaching that hand out and letting anyone take it and taking anyone else's hands. So like, it's that when it when it gets dark and it feels like. You've asked too many questions and you don't want to ask anymore. Reach your hand out and someone will take it and it's all okay. <laughs> you know, it's going to be okay. <laughs> well, I hope this has been a worthwhile yes, way to spend great. your morning. Yeah. Um, I can say from my part that um, I feel a bit wobbly from moving to a new city, yeah. um, you know, starting new work and feeling quite unemployable and useless, ironically. Um, just feeling a bit um, just out of touch with my normal routines and... Mm. I wouldn't go as far as an identity crisis, but yeah. definitely feeling quite... Um, but unstable. There's quite unstable and yeah. quite low. And Tomorrow, I get it. I'm me- very mentally unstable. So, so I think um, just <laughs> just to have this conversation, I think you have definitely put a smile on my face. You've I'm definitely glad, glad. uplifted my spirits and given me lots of really wonderful thoughts to think about. And I really resonated with a lot of the things that you have mentioned, such as, you know, you know, every interaction we have, we give a little bit and we, we take a little bit. And it is beautiful to think about um, that we are in, in real time creating our, our, our life from yeah. these different puzzles and eventually the dots are going to connect yeah. and we're going to be able to see the purpose. But I think it's just your honesty and your vulnerability um, to share all of these things, which, you know, most people probably don't really... Yeah. Um, want to put themselves out there and to reveal and I think is really special when when we really see the complexity and nuances of all the things that we've been through and I, I just want to thank you for um, for your courage and I really just admire also your appreciation for your family they really do sound like incredible people you know mum dad sister brother they they've put up with a lot in life life has chucked a lot at me. <laughs> <laughs> but the sense of resilience I think that overarches or epitom- that, that the Boxall household epitomises is really, really um, inspiring. And I think yeah. if we can all take a little bit more hope um, mm-hmm. in whatever we face, then we'll all be better off. So thank you very much yeah, for yeah. everything. Thank you for having me. It's been great.